0: Hey, Life Church Livonia, and welcome. If this is your first time here and we haven't met yet, my name is Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Life Church Livonia. And if you're new here, we've been praying for you, we've been expecting you. And I want to welcome you to week two of our series Love by Design in our modern age we like to think of ourselves as quite advanced. We like to think of ourselves uh, as superior to people of the past because we understand how so many things work now. We understand how microwaves work and have been able to use microwave radiation to quickly heat our food. We understand how metal and fire and explosions work and now use twisted metal and explosions to propel our cars forward at hundreds of miles an hour. We understand how air currents work and how aerodynamics work and we can use uh, metal to fly in the sky like a bird defying gravity we even know how precious metals work and we can use them to create things like our iPhones but when it comes to some basics like marriage and sex and intimacy many of us still feel at a loss we don't know how these essential things are designed to work even though there's so much more essential to human life now last week we talked about God's design for marriage and this week Uh, You might hear some noises from my daughter as she's poking around upstairs, and without our topic this week, she wouldn't be here. That's right, we're talking about sex. Now, I gave a warning at the beginning, uh, or at the end of last week, and I wanna give it again. Parents, this is gonna be a PG-13 conversation, uh, and it's language and it's openness. Uh, So if you're not quite ready to have your kids hear about sex yet, or you haven't had the talk with them, and you're not sure how, uh, we would encourage you to excuse your kids. And if you're struggling to figure out how to have that conversation, reach out to us. You know, life is a group project. You don't have to figure this out alone. Many parents have gone before you. I also recognize that talking about sex can be very sensitive, uh, can be very awkward, and that's okay. You have permission to feel awkward. And man, you better be glad that YouTube has standards. I was gonna do a whole, you know, a little repeat after me thing just to get us loosened up a little bit here. But then I thought, YouTube is gonna flag me for saying some of these words. However, this topic is too important to let our awkwardness keep us from talking about it. So we're gonna start this awkward conversation with a compelling story about Hugh Hefner. Hugh is the godfather of the pornography industry, and he is the founder and inventor of the Playboy Magazine, the Playboy Channel, and the Playboy Mansion. In the 90s, there was a TV show called Headliners and Legends, and they used to do one-hour specials on different celebrities. And one day, a woman named Karen and her coworker Rick, uh, were assigned to cover Hugh Hefner as a part of their job. Now, Karen was a Christian, and she was really troubled uh, to have to figure out how to connect with this gentleman that she just disagreed with on so many levels. So she goes home, and she talks to her husband, and goes, I don't want to do Hugh Hefner, and he says, listen, Karen, someone's going to do this interview, so it might as well be you, but just do it differently. So Karen begins praying and thinking about what would it look like to do this interview with Hugh Hefner differently. She comes to her coworker, Rick, the next day. She says, you know, Rick, I don't really want to do Hugh Hefner as an interviewer. And he says, me either. She goes, really, why? He goes, well, I'm a Christian, and I disagree with him about so many things. And So I called my pastor last night, and my pastor said, listen, Rick, somebody's going to do this interview. It might as well be you. Just do it differently. And her jaw drops, and she goes, that's what my husband told me. And so they begin talking about what it might look like to do this interview differently. So the day of the interview comes, they get to the mansion, they set up their cameras, and Hef, as he liked to be called, came in with his entourage of women and PR people, and he sits down in that iconic smoking jacket in order to do this interview. And instead of talking about uh, how Hugh Hefner became famous and... the different things that uh, led to his success in different areas, they decided to talk about why he became uh, the person that he was. So the first question they asked was, what was your life like growing up? And Hef starts with, we believed in God, but it wasn't a very loving home. My parents never told my brother and I that they loved us. My mom had a phobia of germs, so she never hugged or kissed us. Heff said that the only act of love he remembers from his parents was a gift of a blanket that he called his bunny blanket due to this rabbit print along the border of the blanket. When he was about seven or eight, Hef developed a tumor behind his right ear and the surgery could possibly leave him deaf. He was longing for a puppy at this point, but due to his mother's phobia of germs, that was a no-go until one of his mother's friends convinced her Listen, he might go deaf. You should do this to love your kid. It's gonna help him through this recovery process. So his mother caves. She goes to the pound, she purchases a puppy, and she brings the puppy home. Hugh said that he loved that puppy so much that he even let the puppy sleep with his bunny blanket. Five days later, the puppy died. They didn't know that they had bought a sick puppy from the pound. And after the puppy died, His mother, so grossed out by the germs, took the bunny blanket that the puppy had slept with and burned it in front of Hugh Hefner. Hugh said in the interview, that bunny blanket was my happiness and security blanket, the only sign that my parents loved me, and she burned it in front of me. So you can get that image in your head of the boy who had the bunny blanket burned, and so he grows up to become the man who creates the bunny empire. Hugh grew up in a loveless home, and the one thing that gave him security and happiness was taken from him traumatically. So Hugh spent the rest of his life turning to sex to try and get the love he was looking for as a kid. And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have a relationship with sex that's not that different from Hugh Hefner's. We feel like something inside of us is missing, and so we move from pornography to pornography or relationship to relationship or one-night stand to one-night stand, hoping and looking for sex to somehow fill this thing that we can't quite describe but we know we're lacking. Maybe you're here today and you're listening and you're married and you know you tried to do things God's way but sex has actually been a source of great pain and conflict in your marriage, not a source of joy and vibrancy and so you're feeling stuck. You know something should be different, at least you think it is for others, but you're not sure what to do. Maybe you're here and You're married and you have a great sex life. It's a joy, it's a source of great comfort, it's something that gives life to your marriage and you wish everybody could experience it. Maybe you're here and uh, you're sexually active with multiple people. You may or may not be married and you think sex is fun, but even though it's fun, it just never seems to be enough. There's a hole or emptiness that no matter how many times you have sex with a multitude of positions with different people that emptiness just quite never seems to go away or get better. Maybe you think each time that it's unfulfilling it was the wrong intensity or the wrong position or the wrong person or the wrong experience, so you keep looking. Maybe you're here today and you're dating and you're deciding whether or not you should have sex or when you should start having sex with this person you care about. Maybe you're here and you're engaged and you're wondering, why is it so bad to start having sex now? I mean, we're getting married anyway, right? Whether you're in one of those groups or you'd put yourself in a different one, when it comes to sex, Most of us are taught by our friends, we're taught by the internet, we're taught by pornography, we're taught by celebrities, we're taught by movies or TV, or we're taught by experience. Very few of us are taught by the church and scripture. Sex statistics in the U.S. show that pornographic websites are visited 700 million more times per month than Amazon, 900 million more times per month than TikTok, and 1.5 billion more times per month than Netflix. 73% 73% of teenagers ages uh, in 2023 ages 13 through 17 looked at porn. 54% of those said they had been exposed to porn before 13 years old. The average age for men to be exposed to porn is 12. Finally, 45% of teenage viewers report that pornography had helpful information about sex, even though 88% of scenes in porn films Uh, have some kind of active physical aggression, and 49% of scenes in porn films are verbally aggressive. Not only that, but the sex entertainment industry is making content right now for both VR um, and for robots to incorporate it with AI to create these personalized sexual experiences, both in the cloud and in real life. And the last reports I heard were that AI sex robots are gonna be on the market for consumer consumption in about two years. None of this information is even including things like movies or TV shows with sex scenes in them. It's not including romance novels or animated content or conversations with friends or personal experience. The bottom line is our culture is teaching us about sex every day, and most of what it has to say is a distortion of God's good and beautiful design. So as the church, we just gotta get over our awkwardness and squeamishness, and we gotta talk about this. It's too important not to. Last thing before we jump into God's word, Like last week, um, as I talk about God's design for sex, you're probably going to experience some, ooh, I don't think I like that. Ooh, I think I've done that wrong. Oh, shoot, I don't think that I'm doing this well. And I just want to invite you in that. Rather than becoming defensive or filled with shame or running away or retreating, I just want to invite you to simply turn to God in his loving kindness and say, Father, forgive me for my sin and help me live in your way. So the question that we're looking at today is what is God's design for sex? Now, similarly the last week, I could have picked one aspect of this and really dove in and tried to uh, create some more depth in the topics, but maybe to a fault, I decided to go wide. And if you think I should have gone deeper into any of these topics instead of giving a, a wider view of it, I'm open to that feedback and would love to hear that. Now usually when the church does a talk about sex, we talk about how dangerous it is or how it's done sinfully and we end up accidentally and sometimes on purpose communicating things like sex is bad, sex is dangerous, sex is taboo, I won't ask, you don't tell, right? And to be sure, some of the most common and destructive sins in the pages of scripture and in our modern world are sexual sins. But instead of talking about all the ways to do it poorly, I want to talk about how good and beautiful God designed sex to be. When people are trained to spot counterfeit money, they don't train by looking at the counterfeits. They train by looking at the real thing so that when they see a counterfeit, they can tell something is off. And that's what I want to do today as we look at God's design for sex. So the first mention of sex that we see in Scripture is actually in Genesis chapter 1. The very first chapter of the Bible talks about sex. And it comes with a command. We read this in Genesis 1.26. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number. This is part of the human commission. Meaning God's original charge to humanity as his image bearers is that we would have children and that we would be his co-gardeners, image bearers upon the earth. Now, on the surface, this seems like it may just simply be about getting pregnant and having babies. And it certainly is about that, but it's actually deeper than that, too. Humanity images God in our whole design. So the question is, how does the sexual reproductive design of human beings image God? What about that is like God? In verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, I talked about this last week. We see God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present in the first two verses. This perfect, loving, uh, beautiful community of love that's equally self-sacrificing and being self-giving, this perfect community of love. It's one of the classic theological questions is, well, if God is this perfect, self-giving, self-sacrificing community of love, why make anything at all, right? Why would God create anything? And I think the answer is simple. Love's nature is that it wants to give. So love always makes more to love. Through sexual love, we make more to love as well. And in this, we image God. Notice in this passage, God is telling his children, Adam and Eve, whom he's made in his own image to have children in their image that they might be God's ambassadors and co-gardeners on the earth. So the very first thing the Bible shows us about God's design for sex is that God designed sex as an act of love that makes more people to love. Now, I realize not everyone can have children who wants them, and there is certainly a grief to that. But that doesn't mean we can't grow our families in other ways and bring people into that circle of love through things like fostering and adopting. And many of you listening are doing or have done that, and that is good and beautiful. However, just because childbearing is not possible in all cases does not mean that sex isn't designed for it, right? I'm also not saying that sex is only for childbearing. The Bible has more to say about it than this, but the very first thing that we see is that childbearing is inherently a part of God's design for sex, and that um, it's still the only way to make people. The next three things the Bible has to say about sex are actually in Genesis 2 and Genesis 4. And I want to read both those passages, and then I kind of want to weave them together into one cohesive thought. So we're going to begin in Genesis 2, and it says this. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. We're going to come back to that. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And then Genesis 4 says this. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Okay, so first I want to elaborate on that line a little bit. United to his wife, and they become one flesh. The nature of sex is that it is meant to bind us, to join us, to unite us to another person in order to create a family. This is true emotionally, it's true mentally, but this is also true physically on a chemical, neurological, hormonal level. Dr. Larry J. Young is a neuroscientist at Emory University, and he says this about hormones released during sex. He says oxytocin amplifies, amplifies in the brain, the face, the smell, the voice of the person an individual is having sex with, so the brain can really sense those intensively. But it is the interaction of oxytocin and dope with dopamine which creates the intense pleasure of sex that causes the bond. That is the combination of the pleasure dopamine and the senses of the sexual partner oxytocin create a bond with a sexual partner. Sex is designed to unite and bind us to our spouse meaning an unintended consequence of multiple sexual partners is that as our brain tries to bond to this person and we say, Oh no, 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 actually don't do that. I don't actually want to be bound to this person. I just wanted a good time on a Saturday night. One of the unintended consequences of that is our brain goes, Oh, okay. Got the message. Got it. Don't bond to people as much. And that doesn't just impact our bonding with the person we're sleeping with. It affects our ability's brain to connect with people. All people. This doesn't just inhibit our ability to bond with the partner we want to, it also inhibits our ability to bond with family, with friends, etc. A similar phenomenon happens with pornography use because we're trying to simulate a joining or uniting with another person, but it's a fantasy, it's fake, it's an illusion. Not only that, but use of pornography and having multiple sexual partners begins to pattern the brain in such a way that we treat people as simply a means to an end of meeting our own needs rather than treating people as unique, unrepeatable miracles of God whom Jesus died for and whose existence is sacred apart from me. Martin Buber, a wonderful theologian and psychologist, did an amazing job putting language to this dichotomy. He calls this an I-thou relationship versus an I-it relationship. And I would direct you to his work uh, for more insight and info on that. But sex is one of the most common forms in which we treat people as its, to meet our desires um, rather than as thous, with hopes and dreams and futures apart from us. And we're going to come back to that a little bit in the end. The second part of this passage I want to comment on is in verse 25, where it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is a vision of what marriage should feel like, and by extension, what sex should feel like. Marriage should be this container of commitment, in which I can come with all my flaws, and you can come with all of yours, and we can be naked physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, yet be chosen and loved and accepted by the other. The work of marriage is to create a space where we are able to be naked together, yet unashamed. The fact that Amber has committed her life to me, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, that should be the security I need in order to feel vulnerable Uh, and say, here I am, this is all of me. This is all of my flaws, this is all my issues, this is all of my sins, and I wanna see all yours and I choose you. Right, that's what it's designed to be. Now, of course, this is not a defense for unrepentance or defending our sinful and broken parts. As we are totally vulnerable with our spouse, one of the inevitable consequences of that is we're gonna discover many things that we need to change together for the marriage to thrive, for us to grow individually, and for our spouse to flourish. Of course, when there's a sin and a brokenness in us, the wrong response is, if you love me, you'll accept me, naked and unashamed. You know, this isn't about defending our sinfulness. That's a selfish response that's ignoring our spouse's cry of, ouch, this part of you is hurting me, and it's hurting our relationship. So we don't want to defend those things, but we do want to uh, accept each other as we're in process in those things. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but that kind of nakedness is deeply embedded in God's design for sex. So coming back to Genesis 4, and then I'll weave all these thoughts together. It says, now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The NIV translates that word knew this way, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The Hebrew word there that's Sometimes translated made love to, and sometimes translated new, is the Hebrew word yada, which literally means to know. Yada does not mean to make love. I mean, we can tell from the context that's what it's talking about. But isn't it interesting that the first time the Bible describes the act of sex, it uses this word to know instead of the word to impregnate, or intercourse, or penetration, or any kind of technical term. It uses the word know. When Jesus gives the greatest commandment, he says, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. These components there, heart, mind, soul, strength, they are not random. These are the components of a human being. When someone has a heart, and a soul, and a mind, but no body, we call them dead, (laughs) or a ghost, right? (laughs) Or something like that. When someone has a body, and a mind, and a soul, but no heart, we call them a sociopath, right? (laughs) We have words for these things when someone is lacking one of those four. Human beings are designed with an emotional center, a heart, a mind, an intellectual center, a soul, a spiritual center, and a strength, a body center. So when Adam says, that he, or when the Bible says Adam knew his wife and she conceived, this is defining sex as so much more than two bodies just making each other feel good until they climax. This is not purely a physical act with little or no significance emotionally, mentally, spiritually. This is defining sex as an intimate knowing of the other person's heart, mind, and soul that expresses itself physically within the context of the marriage covenant. As they know each other now in their bodies well all these thoughts mean together is that sex is designed to be a naked and unashamed knowing of your spouse's heart mind soul and finally body is to become one so sex is designed both as this naked and unashamed knowing of oneness not just a physical act and as an act of love that makes more to love these are both in the first four chapters of genesis but there's a third aspect that's more about how we should behave towards each other sexually, more than just about sex itself. Now in the, biblical, in the biblical framework, sex is exclusive to marriage, and I'll talk about that more in a minute. But building on last week, one of our takeaways was that marriage is meant to look make us look like Jesus. And if that's true, then that must include sex. And so what does a Jesus-like sex life look like, right? When Jesus says things like, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Or as Jesus talks about loving our neighbor as ourselves and gives the example of the Good Samaritan, who takes care of his wounded Jewish enemy, who binds up those wounds, who sacrifices for his healing, who cares for his needs. By the way, side note, I almost did this whole sermon on what does the the parable of the Good Samaritan have to say about sex, and maybe that's a different sermon for a different time. But it is fascinating to think about how this uh, person... um, loves his neighbor, and then yet marriage is meant to be the kind of ultimate form of that. So again, we see him binding up his neighbor's wounds, sacrificing for his healing, caring for his needs. And that has something to say about our sex life as followers of Jesus. Furthermore, as we see the example of Jesus washing his disciples' feet and going to the cross for healing those he loves, uh, what does all this say about sex? What this means is that these attitudes and postures and teachings about loving others above ourselves apply not just to marriage, but to our sex lives as well. If marriage is meant to help us become more like Jesus, then our sex lives should embody that same posture of love and self-sacrificial service that Jesus' life did. So in the Christian paradigm, sex is designed as an act of self-giving, not self-interest. This is totally counter to the culture's view on sexuality, where it revolves 100% around my desires, my preferences, my wants, my needs. And if I have to say no to myself, it means I'm in the wrong relationship. In the way of Jesus, sex is an extension of the whole Christian life. It's not isolated from it. It's this place where I serve my spouse the most, not the least. As our nakedness increases, so does my posture of service and self-giving and looking to the needs of the other over my own. This is part of what is so hard about sex. It requires that I trust and communicate with the other person to meet my desires um, as I give of myself to meet their desires. Now, the whole sermon could have been about just that one point, and maybe it should have been, but if you're here, I just want to kind of focus on a couple different groups here is we begin to land the plane and, and talk a little bit about what sex isn't designed for. <clears throat> if you're here and you're a married couple with a frustrated sex life, I want to recommend a book called The Great Sex Rescue. It speaks very candidly and very helpfully about this topic Uh, and, and in so many facets. It talks about how to serve one another sexually. It talks about challenges and orgasming. It talks about how to create a sex life where you both climax as a normal way of sex, not as an exception to the rule. It talks about so many of these things and more, and it's all backed up with really great research, and I would really, really encourage you to read it. It's a great read. But secondly, married folks, I want you to hear this about what sex wasn't designed for. Sex was not designed to be fulfilling, but was designed to be satisfying. Now here's a distinction, this is what I'm, the distinction I'm making here. Fulfilling is, wow, that was great, I've had that, now I'm full, I don't need any more, I'm done. I'm complete, right? In contrast, satisfying is, wow, that was a great meal. I'm satisfied for tonight, but I know I'm gonna be hungry again tomorrow. Like the Hugh Hefner story, many of us look to sex to fill something in us, And when that doesn't happen, because it's not part of its design, we begin to get anxious and go, oh no, it was the wrong experience, the wrong position, the wrong intensity, the wrong this, the wrong that, the wrong person, the wrong marriage. And we begin to look elsewhere but it's not designed to fulfill us it's designed to satisfy so that we keep coming back to it so that we keep having babies and the human race doesn't die out right i mean it only makes sense if sex was fulfilling humanity would have died out in like two generations because we would have been like that's it i'm good i don't need any more i'm done right you know so as you come to sex married folks it's not about filling a hole inside of you it's about a self-giving intimacy that is designed to fade enough that you come back together for more. And a side note on that, nothing in this world, by the way, is designed to fulfill us, only Jesus. This is what Jesus says to the woman at the well when he says, I'm the living water, if you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty again. The whole sermon could be about this section too, but we're going to move on. If you're a dating or engaged couple here today, I want you to know that the Christian ethic in mar- on sex is um, faithfulness in marriage and celibacy in singleness. Sex was not designed to be practiced outside of marriage. Why? Well, two quick notes on that. Scripturally speaking, when the early church in Acts 15 is being flooded with non-Jewish converts, right? Jews were following the law of Moses, and all these people are Christians who weren't Jews, and so they're not following the law of Moses. And what do we do about that? Right? They called this council together. And they were trying to figure out, well, which of the Mosaic laws did Jesus fulfill? Which is the Holy Spirit given new insight on? And what are the ones that we feel like Christians, as the Jewish faith is transforming through the Messiah, which of the Mosaic laws should Christians still keep? And so after much prayer and testimony and debate, the council sends this answer out to the churches of the New Testament. It says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourselves from these you will do well farewell so that word sexual immorality where are they getting a definition for that what what constitutes sexual immorality versus sexual morality well the answer is they're getting it from the old testament laws around sex You can read those laws in the Old Testament books of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, but you can also read how the New Testament writers interpret those laws into the early church in books like Romans and first and second Corinthians and Hebrews and a number of others. The biblical witness is clear though, that faithfulness in marriage and celibacy and singleness is God's design. People will talk like the Old Testament laws just, I don't know, got too old or they're outdated or we just don't do those things anymore and that's why they're not relevant. That's just simply not true. The reason we don't practice some of the old Mosaic laws and we do others is because of this council in Acts chapter 15 that answered that question. So we're going to press a layer deeper and go, okay, so faith, celibacy and singleness, faithful and marriage. Why, why would the Bible say that though? Remember, marriage, including sex, is meant to be a reflection of God and his love. Jesus doesn't get married or have sex because he's already engaged to the church and Jesus is saving himself for his wedding day in Revelation chapter 21. And Jesus saves himself for his marriage, so we save ourselves for our marriage to our earthly spouse, but ultimately we realize that's only an analogy of the real thing as we save ourselves for Christ. Sex is the greatest physical act of intimacy we can give another person. However, without a covenantal commitment, to that other person's well being or good or flourishing, or really just simply using them to satisfy our own desires. That's not God's love. God doesn't use you. God doesn't use you to feel good. And we shouldn't use each other that way either. Jesus died for you. Do you know that? I want you to hear me say that. Jesus died for you. You're worth his life. Do you understand? You're worth the life of the Son of God. That means that if someone else wants access to the most vulnerable and intimate parts of your life in a way that costs nothing, you should say no. Because you're simply worth more than that. That's not an embodiment of God's love. A lifelong covenantal commitment is the price and should be the price of admission to the deepest parts of you. Don't settle for less. In short, don't unite your body to someone you haven't united your life to. Jesus gave his life for intimacy with you. Don't settle for less with somebody else. You're worth more than that. And if you're a single person here today, the last thing I want you to know, sex was not designed to be the foundation for your identity. Whenever the Bible talks about identity, it has one root. It has one source. It has one foundation, and it's God. In the Old Testament, the identity of Israel was rooted in their, not in their desires, not in their de- affections, not in their marital status or their successes, but was rooted in that they were the people of God. That's what defined them. And that's what we symbolize in baptism. We symbolize that our old identity goes under the water and we rise up to this new identity in Christ. Paul puts it so well in his letter to the Galatians when he says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to his promise. The whole biblical witness screams with clarity that we are either defined by God or we're defined by our sin. This is why the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for adultery and idolatry is the same word, because adultery is the physical version of idolatry. And idolatry, worshiping another god, is the spiritual version of adultery. And the number one sin that Israel finds themselves being pulled away by God from is sexual sin. When they want to have sex in a certain way and God says no, they find themselves a God who will say yes. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing but when we follow Jesus as Lord, it is Christ alone that we stand on. And it's his love that defines who we are. It is Jesus that defines you, not your relationship status, not your desires, not your hopes, not your sins. There is only one biblical source of identity, and that is Jesus. So as we close today, this was a lot of information, and I could have done like a whole series just on sex. But there's two things I'm sure of. Thing number one, I am sure that we have all sinned in this area of relationships. We've all sinned in some way. I I know it. Relationships are hard and sex is hard. And I'm sure we've sinned in this. The second thing I'm sure about is that Jesus died on the cross to take all of our sins upon himself so that he might reconcile us to God and that he might buy intimacy with us back with his own life. And as we're here today, You may disagree with me on a number of things, but i ask you to look at the fruit of your life. I am convinced that doing life God's way leads to life and life in all its fullness. And doing life outside of God's design brings destruction and death. It steals things from me and it's, it's diminishing. It's not flourishing. Friends, Whether you've followed Jesus for a long time, but you've kind of done sex your own way, whether you've never followed Jesus, and and you're here and you're feeling beat up by the results of the sexual life you've lived, the arms of Christ are open to you. He gave his life that he might be close to you. And he wants to teach you what marriage and sex should be like by the intimacy that you have with him. Because at the end of the day, all of this is pointing to something bigger, And it's pointing to a love that pursues you with no bounds. A love that's self-sacrificing, that's self-giving, that's for your flourishing. And that love is chasing you right now. On the cross, Jesus put our sins to death, and when he rose from the dead, he rose to a new kind of life. And the invitation that he's given you today is, do this my way. Do this my way. And taste the life that you were made to live. And so if you're here today, and God's moving in your heart and you're feeling his conviction, I just want you to pray with me right now. Lord, I have done sex my own way. And Lord, at times it's fun and at times I feel like a slave to it. But Lord, I I don't wanna live in the hopelessness, the emptiness, the longing, the pain of this anymore. Lord, I want to be free, and I want to be whole, and I want that thing that I've been searching for in my soul to be satisfied and fulfilled, and Lord, I believe that you will fulfill it. So I just receive, Lord, your forgiveness for my sins, and I ask that you would send your spirit to lead me in your way of life. Show me how to do this your way, and Lord, I pray that I would taste the fruits of this and just stand in awe of your power, your goodness, and your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you just prayed with us, please reach out to us via connection card. Again, life is a group project. You don't have to do this alone, and we want to walk alongside you.